Listen to all of Wild Cornell Medicine's informative podcasts at wildcornell.org slash podcasts. Welcome to Wild Cornell Medicine CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm your host, Dr. John Leonard, and today we will be reviewing some of the latest updates from the 2019 American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, annual meeting. ASCO is the world's leading organization for physicians and oncology professionals who care for people with cancer. Each year, ASCO's annual meeting brings together over 40,000 oncology professionals from around the world to discuss state-of-the-art treatment modalities, new therapies, and ongoing controversies in the field. And beyond that, there is participation from patient advocates and patient advocacy groups as well, uh, really working towards uh, collectively uh, fighting against cancer. So my guest today is Dr. Manish Shah, who's director of the Gastrointestinal Oncology Program and chief of the Solid Tumor Service at Wild Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. Together, Dr. Shah and I will review some of the most significant research findings from the 2019 ASCO meeting. Dr. Shah will discuss updates in solid tumor oncology, and I'll cover updates in the field of hemologic malignancies. So Manish, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I really could think of a few people better to sit and chat a bit about some of the things that have happened at ASCO. I want to start with, there were some important plenary sessions, and for those of you who are not used to scientific meetings, there are posters where work is presented kind of informally, where you can come and talk to the authors. There are oral presentations, and then the best or the most high-impact presentations are called the plenary session where basically everything else at the meeting comes to a halt and more or less everybody uh, gathers in one room and hears about the most important practice-changing things. And so a couple of those presentations uh, related to solid tumors. So I'm going to ask you first about pancreatic cancer, and that's really an area that has been very challenging to take forward, but there were some important findings presented in the meeting. So if you could take us through that. Sure. So This was a very important abstract that was presented um, at the plenary session. It was a study evaluating olaparib in patients who had a BRCA1 or 2 mutation in pancreatic cancer. So as you know, pancreatic cancer is a uh, relatively uncommon gastrointestinal cancer. What has really emerged over the last several years is that about one in eight uh, people with pancreatic cancer will have a mutation in their germline that might be associated with the disease. And a common mutation is the BRCA1 or 2 mutation, which is also known as the breast cancer-associated gene. Um, So it turns out that there are patients with family histories of pancreatic cancer that also carry the BRCA1 and 2 gene. Importantly is that in another solid tumor, breast cancer and in ovarian cancer, a, a class of drugs called the PARP inhibitor, uh, PARP inhibitor, um, olaparib is one of them, um, can have effectiveness in tumors that have a BRCA mutation. So to distill that down a little bit, BRCA is important in repairing DNA damage. And if you inhibit PARP, you actually increase the effects of tumors that have a deficiency in this pathway. So it's like a way to target specifically a mutation that is characteristic of these types of tumors. So in pancreatic cancer, the study was kind of a novel study design where 
patients received a combination chemotherapy regimen for about four months. And then if they didn't progress, they were then randomized to receive either olaparib or placebo. And it was a relatively small study in terms of the number of people that were randomized. Um, but it was important because it showed that people who received olaparib had a much better time to progression, meaning that their disease was controlled for a much longer time um, with the drug versus not having the drug. Um, and and it, it actually made a big splash. I think for us as you know clinicians and also for a lot of our patients, what it what we realize is that genomic testing for pancreatic cancer is an important thing. And in fact, it's now part of the guidelines for both ASCO and NCCN. So if you are a patient with pancreatic cancer, or if you have a relative with pancreatic cancer, getting genomic testing is an important thing because it may impact your care. So that was one of the key findings of of this study. Perhaps a little bit disappointing, though, was that uh, patients who received olaparib versus not, there's no difference in overall survival in this cohort. And what it suggests is that patients who progressed without receiving olaparib, they then went on to receive more treatment and the disease was controlled for a while. So um, I think an important abstract is it shows us that testing is important. There is efficacy of this drug. Um, but we still have work to do to improve survival. So where do you think it's going to go? Will there be combinations? Will there be uh, subsets of patients that might get this? Is everybody going to get this? Or because there's not an overall survival benefit, perhaps a little less clear? What, what's your kind of vision of where that will go? Yeah, I'm not sure. I I, I think that um, there, there will try to be an approval for the drug. But right now, it's not approved in pancreatic cancer. It's only approved in breast cancer and ovarian cancer. The challenge with this class of drugs is that it has a lot of toxicity. So you can't really combine it with chemotherapy. You have to give it by itself. Um, so, you know, I think that there is, the study did show that there is activity and we have to find the right place to use it where it can impact on survival. One of the ideas that um, was sort of mulling around at ASCO was that you know, we should use it in the adjuvant setting where uh, we're trying to treat microscopic disease. It's a pill. It's relatively well tolerated by itself, and it and it does show activity in this setting. So that might be a way where this could go in the future. Okay, uh, that certainly got a lot of attention. I think at the meeting again, by definition, being at the plenary session, and again to right. touch on your point around. BRCA testing. So basically every patient with pancreatic cancer and I presume family members as well should have genetic testing for BRCA, not only for pancreatic cancer risk, but other cancers associated with this mutation. Is that kind of the general guidance at this point? Yeah. So the guidance is actually if uh, patients with pancreatic cancer should get tested. Mm -hmm. And if they do test positive for mm -hmm. having mutation, then the family members can get tested afterwards. Right. If the uh, patients don't have a mutation, then there probably isn't a need to uh, test the family members yet. But yeah. but that is the take-home point is that mm -hmm. um, genomic testing should be done for patients with pancreatic cancer. Um, there's about a one in eight chance that you'll find something, um, either a BRCA mutation or other mutation that might uh, impact the care that you get down the line. And so it's important not only for yourself as you know having pancreatic cancer and how it could affect your care, but it's also important for your family members because there are screening programs as well to help reduce the risk.
Great. So we'll come back to GI cancers a little bit more later. I know that's your area of focus, but I wanted to next uh, jump to breast cancer. There was an important uh, uh, study uh, focused on a relatively new agent uh, in advanced breast cancer that I think also was at the plenary session, if I'm not mistaken. So. Yeah, that's right, Dr. Leonard. So it was the Mona Lisa study. Um, this was a study um, in uh, women who have hormone receptor positive breast cancer, premenopausal. And the study was endocrine therapy with or without a drug called ribocyclib. That's a new drug. It inhibits the CDK4 and 6 pathway, which is a cell cycle checkpoint inhibitor. And this was a study examining using it earlier in the care of patients with breast cancer. So the way that we treat breast cancer normally is that for patients who have hormone receptor positivity, we try to use anti-hormonal agents, um, ER inhibitors, estrogen receptor inhibitors specifically. We save chemotherapy for later. Um, and this was a study looking at combining hormonal therapy with a CDK4-6 inhibitor to see if we can have benefit. And in fact, the combination was much better than their hormonal therapy by itself. So it, it suggests that treating early with the combination therapy, your best treatment actually improves survival. And that's quite amazing because in breast cancer, as you know, um, it tends to be a more of a longer lasting disease than many GI cancers. And the main endpoint for approval in breast cancer is actually not overall survival, but progression-free survival. But this study did improve overall survival. So this is a drug that I think uh, really this this study is changing standards of care and patients going forward because of the overall survival benefit pretty clearly will get this combination going forward. Is that you yes. what you would expect? Yeah, definitely. So the drug is approved in, in breast cancer, and, and the research is trying to figure out when's the best time to use it. And what we're learning is that if we bring the drug earlier, um, we can have much more benefit. And that's actually a key finding. Great. So I want to jump uh, into the heme malignancies area and talk about one study in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, which is the most common uh, subtype of leukemia. And we really historically, CLL has been treated with chemotherapy-based treatments or chemotherapy plus antibody-based treatments, a drug called rituximab or more recently, uh, a drug called obinutuzumab. So over the last several years, CLL treatment has really changed and a type of drug called a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor or ibrutinib uh, has been approved first in, in relapsed and refractory patients and more recently up front and so as initial treatment. And so ibrutinib has come onto the scene and is really largely I think, change CLL management in many situations where people are getting treated with this pill rather than chemotherapy. So one of the downsides of ibrutinib is that it, as of now, is an indefinite treatment. Uh, and people take it, unless they stop tolerating it or it stops working, they take it indefinitely. Uh, so kind of in parallel to this, another drug called venetoclax, which venetoclax is another pill that inhibits a protein called BCL2, which is important uh, in keeping cells alive and making them resistant to treatment. So venetoclax has also been approved in CLL and used in CLL. Uh, and it's been used alone or in combination with, again, one of these antibody treatments, in particular, uh, obinutuzumab, a newer version of an antibody that targets something called CD20. So the study that was presented in the hemolignancy session at ASCO uh, looked at patients uh, treated with either chlorambucil, an older chemotherapy, 
and uh, obinutuzumab, the antibody, or venetoclax with the antibody obinutuzumab. So again, comparing essentially an antibody treatment with an older chemo drug or with the newer venetoclax. And this was done largely in older patients with comorbidities or, or other medical conditions where uh, where the chlorambucil-based treatment is commonly used because these patients can't tolerate more aggressive therapy. And the net of the study, to kind of cut to the chase, is that um, this was a fixed duration of treatment where patients took over the course of a year the combination. So you see that you have venetoclax obinutuzumab, which is a one-year treatment in this study, versus in other studies, the indefinite ibrutinib. And the net was that the venetoclax or benentuzumab over the course of a year um, was very effective, was better than the chlorambucil-based treatment, but more importantly, the majority of patients had what we call MRD negativity, meaning with the most sensitive tests, there was no evidence of CLL. So this was a highly effective regimen, but it really poses the question, can you, instead of taking ibrutinib indefinitely, can you do a year of obinutuzumab plus venetoclax and have a long remission? Um, so this didn't compare those two approaches head to head. And in fact, in the future, we expect those comparative trials will be there. But it raises the idea, which I think is a potential advantage for CLL patients, that you can get a novel drug like ibrutinib and take it indefinitely, or now perhaps one could do this combination of antibody treatment plus venetoclax for a year and potentially have a long remission, at least as suggested by the fact that the rates of MRD negativity or, or low levels of the disease were, were quite good. So I think it, it really in the CLL world is going to challenge the idea of with these new drugs, do we need to do it indefinitely or can we do fixed duration of therapy? And that's becoming a buzzword because it's obviously easier for patients, less expensive, less toxic. That sounds really exciting. So with the brutinib, do you get MRD negative status as well? Interestingly, you don't do it to a high degree. Patients do well despite not uh, often not being MRD negative. They can stay on the drug and the disease is basically suppressed even though patients are not MRD negative. So MRD negativity is a surrogate. For abrutinib, people can do very well with, despite still having MRD present. On the other hand, if you can get people with a, a fixed duration regimen to be MRD negative, then maybe you can stop it and the patients will do well for a very long time. So all this needs to be tested, but I think for patients, the idea that you can get a new drug for a shorter time um, might prove to be uh, uh, nice, obviously. That's really exciting. The obinutuzumab, is that a CD20? Is that That's different? That's a CD, CD20. Antibody. And very different than rituximab? It's a, a newer anti-CD20. It has some different properties to it. Uh, in some ways, has a little bit more in the way of side effects, but it has more antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. And in CLL, potentially seems to be a bit better than rituximab, at least in, in randomized trials. So now I want to move to uh, to prostate cancer. Again, another common cancer. And again, uh, some ask you about uh, some data with a novel drug, enzalutamide. What is that uh, all about? And, and how is that potentially changing things for prostate cancer patients? Sure. So enzalutamide is a new androgen receptor inhibitor that's used and approved in prostate cancer. And um, similar to the uh, ribocyclib study where we're getting active agents earlier on, this study in hormone-sensitive prostate cancer compared the use of enzalutamide with standard of care versus 
um, standard of care alone in um, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. And um, it asks, again, the question of if you are combining therapies earlier on, are you able to um, improve efficacy? Um, in this case, the standard of care was docetaxel, which is a chemotherapy agent that attacks microtubulations. This is a large study. Over 1,100 patients were randomized in a one-to-one way, and patients who received the combination, the androgen receptor and zalutamide with docetaxel, actually did much better in terms of survival. Um, and it's very similar to the ribocyclib study, where you combined hormonal therapy with the CDK4 and 6 inhibitor. Um, the combination of hormonal therapy with cytotoxic therapy seems to add activity. Great. So from the standpoint of treating patients, again, it sounds like another uh, another scenario where patient care may change and, and uh, uh, the new standard of care uh, may include this, this agent. Is that correct? Yeah, I would think so. I think that the combination um, did show a lot of uh, activity and improved survival. So um, and for both in breast cancer and prostate cancer, I think we are seeing some practice-changing studies at the plenary session. But I think it actually, for me, it leads to another uh, abstract that was presented at the plenary session. And this was an examination of the time to treatment and the expansion of Medicaid. And it relates because what it really shows is that if you're able to provide insurance to a large group of people, you're able to reduce the time to treatment. And these two studies um, in breast cancer and prostate cancer suggest that the earlier you treat with a combination therapy, the better your outcomes are going to be. You're, you're improving survival. Um, so I think that the Medicaid expansion study, which is not a drug development study, I admit, but it, it actually uh, is an important study because it showed that um, in areas where uh, Medicaid was expanded, the time to treatment um, for minority populations went from a difference of about 5% to less than 0.5%, so a tenfold improvement in time to treatment. And we think that in, you know, treating earlier makes a difference, as these other studies showed. Yeah, I think that that really highlights the idea that we go to ASCO and we hear about all these new treatments and often expensive uh, delivery of care. But uh, as my daughter once told me, as she was thinking about careers, um, if we could only deliver the, the treatments that we know work very well to the patients that need them more effectively, we probably can, can impact outcomes for patients in a similar or much greater way than by discovering additional new treatments. If, uh, and it, it highlights, I think, the study you cite that um, you know, we really need to focus on getting treatments to the patients and breaking down the barriers and often their financial and insurance coverage as well um, that can really uh, make a difference and, and have the impact uh, to improve outcomes. Absolutely. I think it did show that. I think that healthcare is complicated. And if we're able to deliver care at the right time to the right person, we can you know, optimize our benefits. Great. So I want to talk about immunotherapy a little bit, uh, and uh, we're going to get to uh, the immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, in a minute or two. But before we get there, I wanted to touch on uh, the concept of CAR T cells and, and what we call bite types of treatment. These are novel ways of engaging the immune system to fight uh, the tumor and the concept of CAR T cells were presented. I'm not going to go into details uh, because uh, I know that many people have heard about these agents. They're approved in in ALL, acute lymphocytic leukemia, 
and uh, lymphoma, but the concept of a CAR T-cell is removing a, a T-cell or a population of T-cells from a patient in the laboratory, uh, engineering them to go after new targets and to be stronger uh, immune uh, effector cells being reinfused into the patient and then working against the tumor cells. And um, this is, again, an approved therapy for certain lymphoid malignancies, including large cell lymphoma. These can be effective for some patients where standard treatments aren't working anymore, uh, but also uh, have some side effects to them as a byproduct of the immune system engagement. And so we saw a number of studies, uh, kind of follow-up studies, and I, I think it's uh, safe to say at this point that in uh, lymphoid malignancies, about a third of patients seem to respond pretty well to this with a durable response. About a third of patients have a transient response, and a third of patients uh, don't respond at all, or their tumors don't respond at all. And so this is a modality where there's a lot of work going on in trying to, to make it work better. Another Another area uh, is what's called the bites, and these are modified antibodies, so they're not immune cells themselves, but they're engaging the immune cells, uh, and the idea being that these are uh, have two arms to them, these uh, modified uh, versions of, of antibodies that we mentioned earlier. One arm of them or one component can engage the immune system, and the other uh, component can engage uh, the uh, tumor cells. And so there was a drug, uh, AMG420, which was presented in myeloma. This was an agent that binds something called CD3 on the patient's own T cells when it's infused into the patient, and then binds to something called BCMA, which is a, a, uh, a target on myeloma cells. So the idea is that it binds with one arm the immune cell, and on the other arm the tumor cell, uh, brings them together and activates things. And in fact, AMG420 in a small study had uh, a meaningful response rate uh, in myeloma patients targeting this BCMA uh, target. And so again, it's early uh, in the course of this type of treatment, but we have examples of bites and lymphoid malignancies uh, that are exciting and, and which we heard a little bit about. And, it, and we also have uh, that in solid tumors as well. What's your uh, take on that at this point? This is a very exciting class of drugs. Um, so in solid tumors, there are some solid tumors where immunotherapy works um, modestly well, uh, but many solid tumors where immunotherapy doesn't work that well. And that's where we really think that these novel um, bidirectional antibodies, the bite therapies, uh, might have a lot of activity because you can engage either two components of the immune system at the same time or engage um, a the solid tumor cell as well as a component of the immune system. So there are bites under investigation in um, in solid tumors as well. Um, one of them is AMG212, which is in uh, being studied in metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And you know, obviously, it's early, but um, the technology is absolutely amazing, and um, and I think that there's a lot of hope for that. I think the the even next generation is actually not having just uh, two components, but actually including a third or fourth component to um, have uh, engaged multiple different um, aspects of the immune system to overcome resistance. So the immune checkpoint inhibitors have been very uh, important and made a big difference for certain types of solid tumors 
not so much in others, uh, but certainly a very exciting area. And I know that there were uh, many, many studies on immune checkpoint inhibitors at, at ASCO, and these are now standard of care in certain settings. But any kind of top-line comments that you would have as to what people should either take away from ASCO in the big picture for these um, as a thematic area? Are we learning more about who responds, who doesn't respond, what to do about it, and where you see that going? Yeah, so this is a... a enormous area, and um, I'll try to touch on many of the aspects. So certainly in some cancers like melanoma, lung cancer, bladder cancer, the immune checkpoint inhibitors actually uh, work quite well and are actually replacing chemotherapy in many settings. So for example, in lung cancer, if you um, overexpress the PDL1 protein in more than 50% of your cells, you actually can get an immune checkpoint inhibitor right initially as your first treatment uh, without having any chemotherapy. Um, in melanoma, that's commonly done as well, if you, especially if you don't have a BRAF mutation or, or similar mutation. An immune checkpoint inhibitor, either by itself or a combination, is quite useful. Um, what we're learning in other cancers is that the immune checkpoint inhibitors have modest activity, only maybe 10 or 15% might respond by themselves, and we're trying to see if they, there's um, a combination. Combining it with either radiation or chemotherapy can have effectiveness. Um, in gastric cancer, there was a study examining a combination of chemotherapy with an immune checkpoint inhibitor, pembrolizumab, versus um, chemotherapy alone. And in that study, there was a third arm of pembrolizumab by itself as well. Um, and disappointingly, the combination of the immune checkpoint inhibitor with chemotherapy didn't improve um, survival versus chemotherapy alone. But interestingly, the immune checkpoint inhibitor by itself without chemotherapy seemed to be as good as chemotherapy by itself. So it suggests that there is activity. Some patients benefit and others don't. And I think the future is really trying to figure out which patients may benefit the most and, and identifying them so that we can target them with the best treatments. Great. So I want to come back in just a second and ask you about kind of the other uh, one or two things that really excite you either about ASCO uh, or, you know, the future in, in solid tumor therapy. I want to finish uh, our hemolignancy discussion with a study that I thought was kind of in, in interesting and potentially paradigm changing. This was a study um, led by Jason Weston and MD Anderson, and this was uh, the idea that you could treat a curable lymphoma with chemotherapy first with a novel set of drugs. So in large cell, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, the most common subset of lymphomas, um, we cure roughly 70% of patients with chemotherapy called CHOP plus a drug called rituximab, one of the antibodies we referenced earlier. So our CHOP uh, is a, a curative therapy. And uh, we've the paradigm has been over years to try to add things to our CHOP to cure more patients. And that's been met with, I would say, limited success, although a lot of enthusiasm and still some things uh, in the fire is potentially being promising. So once you cure a substantial proportion of people with chemotherapy and you have novel drugs, it raises the idea well, can you get to a point where you can get rid of chemotherapy? How can you take away a regimen that cures some patients? Can you give other drugs that might be as good or better than chemotherapy with a different panel of side effects? And so this study uh, looked at a combination of rituximab, 
a drug called lenalidomide, an immunomodulatory drug, and then brutinib, which we talked about before, and uh, the Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor. These are all drugs that have activity in a subset of large cell lymphoma called ABC or activated B-cell subtype, also uh, referenced as non-germinal center subtype, slightly overlapping. And so the concept here was to treat patients, even though they have a curable lymphoma, treat them first with these novel drugs, and then after a couple of cycles of treatment, then come in with the chemotherapy. So it's kind of a first step to say, well, how do the novel drugs do, and are they good enough that maybe someday we can get rid of the chemotherapy altogether? And so this was a study that uh, basically treated patients with this subtype of lymphoma with a couple of cycles of this rituximab, lenalidomide, and brutinib. And the interesting part was that uh, the majority of patients, roughly 70% of patients, responded to this type of treatment. So it wasn't a home run necessarily, but the response rates were so good, it at least is a baby step toward potentially moving away from chemotherapy. And in fact, there was at least one patient on the study that declined to go on to the chemotherapy part of treatment and actually did pretty well, at least with a degree of follow-up of a year and a half or so. And so, you know, we are moving toward and trying to move toward getting rid of chemotherapy or chemotherapy-free regimens, which we can do in non-curable lymphomas, some of the chronic lymphomas like, like follicular lymphoma. But the idea that we could move there in an aggressive curable lymphoma Uh, is certainly exciting that at least we're moving in that direction. So I thought that was a kind of a paradigm shifting, not that we're going to necessarily do that in practice, but at least it informs uh, perhaps our clinical trial design to move in that direction. So I want to give you the last word. What uh, other areas or area uh, is really something that people ought to pay attention to or got you excited to ask that we haven't touched on? Well, that's wonderful. So it's it's good to hear. In solid tumors, we're also trying to move away from chemotherapy and trying to provide um, therapies like the CDK4 inhibitor earlier on with hormonal therapy or immunotherapy before we give chemotherapy to see if we can provide a, a treatment that doesn't require cytotoxic therapy, which has more side effects and things like that. Um, outside of those areas and, and novel targeted agents, I think the, the key thing for solid tumors is going to be um, identifying patients who benefit from immunotherapy so that we can offer these um, fantastic drugs to them and also the next generation of immunotherapies, the bites that we talked about earlier and the CAR-Ts that are just getting into solid tumors. These are things that are going to be practice changing over the upcoming years, I think. Well, great. This has been a great discussion. And I, I uh, with ASCO being so big, it was great for me to hear your expert take on areas that I wasn't able to see at the meeting. And uh, uh, I think uh, it gives our audience a flavor of some of the exciting things uh, that are happening across the spectrum of both blood cancers and solid tumors. So thank you for joining us. Manish. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So I want to invite our audience to please download, subscribe, rate, and review CancerCast on Apple Podcast, Google Play Music, or online at wildcornell.org. We also encourage you to write to us at cancercast at med.cornell.edu with questions, comments, and topics you'd like to see us cover more in depth in the future. That's it for CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm Dr. John Leonard. Thanks for tuning in. Are you or a loved one suffering from the painful side effects of cancer and cancer treatment? Swollen joints, back pain, and surgical complications are, unfortunately, common. 
Be sure to listen to our podcast about rehabilitation medicine, Back to Health. You'll learn how rehabilitation medicine can help promote wellness during and after cancer treatment. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast, opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Wild Cornell Medicine as an institution.